outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God Kyle, quiz for you. Okay. What do these countries have in common? Number oh one, North Korea. Number two, Afghanistan. Number three, Somalia. Number four, Libya. Number five, Pakistan. Number six, Eritrea. Number seven, Yemen. Eight, Iran. Nine, Nigeria. And ten, India. I was tracking with you until India. Okay. Because <laughs> those are all countries that we currently are in conflict with. But oh. I... I wasn't sure about, uh, I don't think we're in conflict with India. So yeah, I don't know what, what do they all have in common? They're the 10 top worst countries where it's the hardest to follow Jesus. Really? Yeah. By a survey, some report they do, I can link it at the end of at the podcast notes, but yeah, almost 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 4,000 were abducted. Nearly 15,000 churches were attacked or closed. And more than 295,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. Wow. Yeah. And there's 50 countries. They actually list 50. I just gave you the top 10. Those are the, those are the worst countries to follow Jesus. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice to, mm. nice to give them some publicity for that. You... <laughs> Horrible countries. You be nice to call them out. It's just a place people are so threatened, I guess, by people of faith that they make it impossible for, and not impossible, but they do make it difficult for Christians. That was North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. Hmm. And worst country. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how many of those countries that we're currently actively in some form of military conflict with as well. Um, that's kind of intriguing. Um, well, there's definitely a, a, a Muslim influence in some of those countries and more of a— Absolutely. And I know there are peace-loving Muslims, so I don't need that email. I know there are people yeah. that are appalled who are Muslim, appalled by this kind of persecution. And so I get that. Yeah, some of it's communism, and just you can't keep a free people under communist rule. It's very tough. So it's just sad, though. It's sad that in this day and age, it's still, yeah, and the deadliest country to be a Christian is Nigeria. Really? Yep. I've been invited to Nigeria. Hmm. I wonder why. Eighty-two <laughs> wow. percent of Christians killed last year were killed in Nigeria. Were um, killed in Nigeria. Yeah. And there's a direct link between their faith and why they were killed? Yes, that's what this is about. It's not hmm. just they happen to get killed and they happen to be Christians. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of wild. Well, wow. I'm Wayne Jacobson. And I'm Kyle Rice. And welcome to The God Journey. This is the first kind of normal podcast we've been able to do in the last season. I know. It's kind of wild. Since the first of the year, I guess. Since we got into this agreeing with God stuff and... Man, my email and my conversations with people have just gone crazy after the things we've talked about for the last month or so. People just resonating with it, engaged with it, learning new things from it, mm -hmm. expanding my... I mean, I love that. I told somebody uh, last week I was in La Jolla with a group of Christians, and someone mentioned this to me probably a year or more ago, probably maybe two, just mm -hmm. looked at me and said, you're the repository of hundreds of thousands of conversations with people learning to follow Jesus throughout the world. And I said, yes, I, I, that's true. I have gotten yeah. to have those conversations. 
And I get to benefit not just from my wisdom and things God shows me, but I get to benefit from nuggets of wisdom that come from all over the world. And I just absolutely love that, which is why I enjoy sharing it as freely as I can so other people can glean from it as well. It's been cool. Mm-hmm. So hmm. what's the best thing you've heard this week? I had an interesting one. I bumped into, I was I was actually prepping for a class, and this quote came up uh, as I was doing some research, and it said, when people can't control you, they try to control how people view you. Ugh, that was uh, that was an interesting one, especially I was this conversation and what kind of spawned the research for this quote was there's a lot of conversation about why are good people not in politics anymore or why are there why are why does it seem like there may be a potential deprivation in well-rounded quality leaders that are being presented both at the local state and federal level of leadership in government one of the people that i was talking to they are closely connected to some of the political stuff that's going on in the state here in wyoming and that was their comment they were like man that the good people are staying out of it because it's awful like one individual they were close to had been experiencing death threats their kids had been experiencing death threats their their parents had been experiencing horrific comments and smear campaigns and yeah that that launched into this conversation about when people can't control you they can control how people they they try to control how people view you or when you are living in a a wholehearted space that people try to cast doubt on that or try to undermine that because they can't control you directly and that's an interesting thought and part of that is the process of marginalization you know, somebody, yes. if you can't be controlled, particularly if you've got an in-group you're a part of, and yes. you can't control that, then you're worried about other people finding that same freedom. And so you've got to marginalize. I mean, I've experienced this in my own family. For something I'm writing about on the blog right now, people have been following the last lesson I learned from my father. And the rest of it will get up this week, and then maybe you and I will have some time to talk about it and some letters from people. But I, the exact same thing. If they can't control you, then they start this gossip club to neutralize you because you're a horrible person and that gives them the freedom to i guess think whatever they want to think yeah so sad man to be a part of that and to have relationships severed because of it and have the people doing it not care that the relationships are severed well here's kind of the opposite of that okay i like (laughs) the opposite of that this is a friend came sent me this this week. It's a Peter Rollins quote, and I have no idea who Peter Rollins is. I don't know if he's a musician or a or a uh, oceanographer or what. I expect he's a <laughs> writer of some sort. He said this: "It is not then our beloved's mere existence that lights up our life with meaning. It is our beloved's desire for us that has the luminous effect." So then what we really desire, what I really desire is the desire of those I desire. (laughs) Follow all that. I just think that's amazing. And then my friend who says, Mike sent me this from Florida. And at the end of it, he said, what if this is what God is asking us to align with? That Mm -hmm. longing, his longing, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I, I know as I read that quote, I was first of all, just thinking of Sarah and Man, when I when I walk in a room and her eyes light up, my heart lights up even more. I, I light up just because she's there, 
But when her desire is for me, man, I, I found a letter she wrote me for Christmas this year, just thanking me for all we've been through. Hmm. And that desire and that letter from me and my heart just makes my heart light up. And I think that's true of any friendship. You know, yeah. it's, it's not just the friend and I like who they are and what they do, but it's the long, it's the mutual longing hmm. and for God to want that and for us to experience that in him, not just we long for him, he longs for yeah. us. That's, oh, I like that a lot. The, the desire of those that we desire. I, I think that's very true. I mean, the relationships that I'm in, especially the ones that, that I allow into the inner circle that I allow to have more access than others is there's that, there's that mutual deep appreciation for one another and that enjoyment of being around one another and to be in the other person's presence that man, those are, that's a deep and rich thing to experience with another human being. Uh, it's been funny, Jess, uh, you, you talk about Sarah walking into the room and lighting up when she sees you as of late with, you know, Parenting two toddlers, both of which were sick all weekend. The the experience that I'm getting of Jess as I walk in and there's this look of relief on her face of, oh, like the person that I'm doing life with and I'm parenting with and I'm taking on this challenge of kiddos with is here sharing it with me or is taking it over for me or is shouldering this for me right now. And there's a lot of joy to be found in that. Cool. I remember coming home with toddlers and Sarah would just hand me my daughter and say, I don't want to see this child again for the rest of the night. It didn't feel like a lot of desire at that moment, but it was, I was the B team coming in to rescue the team that had been at it all day long, the A team. So, but man, that's really the opposite, right? The mutual desire of relationship versus the desire of someone to control you. And in the failure to control you, and they'll punish you by marginalizing you and controlling how others perceive you. It's so sick and it's so pandemic in our world. It is just, yeah. the, whether it's politics or religious differences or whatever it is, it is, if I can't make you do what I want, I'm going to make other people hate you too. Mm. Thank you. That's a great way yeah. to do life and enjoy it. And well, I mean, I'm wondering even like, so for that individual that enjoys living that way in the world, do they light up about anything? Like, is there, is they, do they have the capacity to light up when community comes into their life or when community is around them? That's a great question. Cause I, I would, th I would think not the people I know who seek control. It, someone said to me last week, control is the opposite of love. And they were talking about mm -hmm. God. And how God responds to us, that control, when I'm trying to control you, I don't love you. I don't want to know you as you yeah. are. I don't want to see the better side in you. I, we had a friend here last week from Ohio, one of, the, one of the tenants of their company. He has about four or five different companies. And one of the things he said about the companies was, we have a, we have a thing, an ethos that we work at. No one is judged by their worst moment. Mm. That's what friendships is about, right? No one's judged by their worst moment. You're trying to marginalize somebody. Everyone is judged not necessarily by their worst moment, but anything I can twist into making it look like it's their worst moment. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think, I think that's why control freaks don't end up with community. Mm -hmm. 
and and because control is if it's the opposite of love and i believe it is then it then it really comes from fear i'm afraid i'm not going to get what i need unless you do what i need you to do to make me feel comfortable and safe and provided for and cared for and so and that's there's a lot of trauma language right there obviously right people with trauma mm -hmm. who are trying to survive really try to control everything around them to their own pain and demise and they end up more and more separated from people who genuinely care about them, but you can't get yeah. through that control. Yeah. I was talking to somebody this week and we got into the comment about, or the dialogue about free will. And our, we were both kind of laughing because it's like every once in a while, I just want to be like, okay, God, like, I know you really are a big deal. Like you are very passionate about free will and and you know as especially in this in the context of love and and that space but it's like you know every once in a while i just want to be like you, you go ahead and pull those puppet strings like I, i'm okay with you being a puppeteer in this situation and and taking some control here and yet that's so like if, if it's genuine if control is genuinely the opposite of love those ramifications go deep they really do and how, why god does the universe the way he does if yeah. control is the opposite of love, and you got all the power in the world, you can control anything yes. you want. But you know what? It's not going to be real if I do. So mm. I'm going to suffer a bit of chaos and grief and sorrow as you guys yeah. hurt each other and destroy each other, hoping for the day redemption takes hold. Man, that's quite a journey to be on. I don't know how we can get to this and not talk about purification narratives. I know we weren't wanting to go here today, but... Let's do it. Someone sent me this from... Uh, Brian McLaren, an mm -hmm. author with the Emerging Church thing. It was a big thing back years ago. I haven't heard much about it lately, but he was speaking at Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation. And mm -hmm. this is uh, some clips from what he said, but he talks about uh, stories of purification. There's a tendency of human beings who form groups to find some minority within their in-group, not, not even an outsider, whom the majority then begins to bully to pick on, to marginalize. This is exactly what happened to me in my own extended family. The majority calls itself clean, and they call this minority unclean. The majority is acceptable, the minority unacceptable. The majority is normal, the minority is queer, odd, or different. The majority eventually creates a kind of coalition aggression against the minority. And mm. in doing so, they make themselves feel good, and they unite themselves because now they've created a common enemy close at hand. Well, that is sick. And when I read that, the first thing that popped in my head is why does that feel good? What is in that process that makes humanity feel good? None of us would want to be in the, the marginalized group and the selected minority in the us versus them. Nobody wants us to, nobody wants to fall in the them category, especially in a group that you thought you were a part of, that you were connected to, that you were, you were involved with. And yet why, why does it feel good to marginalize, to create that minority? It's middle school stuff all over again, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Middle yes. school dynamics in adulthood. But he answers that question. He says, we see stories of purification. I love, I love this purification story. We're going to look good. And to do that, we're going to take you out. So uh, we see stories of purification going on in our politics, in our churches, in our businesses, power dynamics, in our families, even in our own psyches. 
When we're feeling guilty or tense about something, it really does help to find someone else to project our anxieties upon and to make ourselves feel innocent, pure, and clean. Hmm. But scapegoating others, which is exactly what this is, does not actually create peace and security. It almost creates an addiction. Every so often, we need a new victim upon which to pour out our accumulated guilt or shame or fear or anxiety or hostility. This is not just scapegoating. This is, this is finding a human sacrifice, right? So we feel better because that guy is really a jerk in our minds, and that allows us to feel good. Oh, gosh. I remember doing stuff like this. So it's not so far from, yeah, growing up more insecure and more needing to find your identity with an in-group and find somebody on the outside and, oh, my gosh, pick on them and do horrible. But, like, for me, this was middle school stuff. This was not adulthood. And yet when you talk about needing a new victim, isn't that one of the, the theories on why Jesus died? was that he would, the scapegoat theory, where he was the scapegoat for all humanity, that exactly. that was like, I am stepping in, I will be your scapegoat, I will relieve your guilty conscience, I will give you once and for all an ultimate sacrifice to eliminate the necessity for that. Why are we still doing it? Why didn't it eliminate the necessity? <laughs> yes. Why are we still doing it? Why is it still in existence? Because people don't know the grace and freedom that's there, so their accumulated guilt or shame or fear or anxiety or hostility still exists, sadly. It says this, all the people that Jesus hangs out with and eats with are people who are being scapegoated, people who are being used for somebody else's purification narrative. What a statement. Yes. These are the people that Jesus humanizes, people such as Zacchaeus and Matthew, his tax collector friends, a leper, or the woman caught in adultery. If you read the story in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, notice Jesus' physical posture. It is as if he's using his body to draw attention away from the woman and becomes an interruption to a purification narrative that was heading toward a deadly end. Mm. Oh, man, that's the place to be right there. It's with the scapegoated and the marginalized. And then he says, this kind of goes to your question, too. The purification story strikes me as especially dangerous to people who want to be good. The desire to be good can then create in us this need, especially when we feel that we're failing at being good, to find somebody who looks bad or somebody we can portray as bad to lift ourselves up. Mm. Well, people who find their ability to thrive by controlling other people, and we all have these kind of people in our families, right? It's the mother-in-law or the mom or the dad or whatever, that if he's not pleased, no one's pleased. And if you step out of line, then the whole family attacks because that's, it's got this ethos. And it's, it's even worse for people. We're trying to be good. Well, that'd be Christian families, right? We're trying to be good. And you're ruining things because one person won't fit into the control mechanism. Yeah. And I know that happened in our family. I just said, no, I'm not going, I'm not, I'm not going down that road. Mm. And I know it comes from deep pain and trauma in the life of the other person. Yeah. But they don't want to deal with it. That the how they deal with it is control. Mm. And they're always a shade off the truth. They're always twisting every story to make them look like a victim. And you're the bad person for making them feel that way. And it's, it's a horrible thing to be caught in. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I I would say as I was talking about as you were just describing that, especially in family dynamics, my sister, one of my sisters was the the person who fell into that category of the black sheep, the the scapegoat, the person who was not fitting into the social control system. They were rebelling against the the family, the unspoken family rules in order to to function in that family. And for me, I, I always remember being very much the older brother, both realistically <laughs> in that relationship and also in, you know, in an allegorical sense of I'm the good one. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't break the rules. I'm not a rule breaker at all. Like this is what I do. And yet it still failed. That was the wild part is there was then there started to be this shift of almost jealousy or admiration because like, man, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to meet these things. I'm trying to meet the ultimate form of of this narrative or be the ultimate expression of it. This other person is not following. They're not buying into it. They're not playing those games. They're doing their own thing. And yet at one point I pushed it off and compared to them and minimalized them. And then the next moment I'm jealous of them and wishing that I had the courage and the strength to not fit into, or not want to play the game, not want to fit into the power structure or the power dynamic and be another cog in that machine. Man, it was, it was a weird, like definitely a weird tension. Yeah, it would be, it would be to have that. And I think the, the point Brian's trying to make here is it doesn't work. If you're no. trying to make yourself feel better by marginalizing someone else, then you've got to keep finding people to do that with. Yes. The people who step out and say, look, I'm not playing this game anymore. Then you got to find somebody who is, who feels devastated by your desire to control the family. And when one of the control people in a family dies, it creates the environment for other people to fill it. If, if love and understanding and kindness doesn't rule the family, doesn't rule the world, then we mm. get caught up in this. Uh, and I, I think it makes people who are trying to feel good about their life in God by tearing other people down and feeling like if you don't serve my control, you don't love me, mm. um, boy, it just creates a dynamic that's full of death. Mm. And there's no way to navigate it except just pretend and go along as best you can. Try not to be the, the marginalized whipping boy. But at some point, you may have to step out of it to keep it from destroying you. And I think what, one of the things, too, is once you step out, once you move out of that space, then how do you, how do you keep your heart intact? Right. When, especially when you're being minimalized or when you're being pushed to the outside, you know, for, for me, like, at, like I said before, like at one point I was belittling that I was putting that down. I was marginalizing my sister. And then the next minute I'm looking on with longing and envy of like, okay, what does it take to get there? Because I'm tired of trying to perform here. I don't want to be there here anymore and performing in the system anymore. And yet I don't, I don't know what it'll take to get me out of it and not play the game anymore. And I always wondered, like, how did, uh, for my sister, how did she keep her heart intact? How did she stay in that space um, once she left, when she was in the space where she was being marginalized or minimalized by the family system? How did she keep her heart intact in the midst of that? 
Well, let's have her on next week as a guest. We could ask. I know. Seriously. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm making a note of like, I need to follow up on a conversation here. Um, But was it just like all out rebellion against God and everything else or just rebelling against the system that was trying to control her beyond anything that was fair? Initially, I perceived it as total, total rejection, total uh, rebellion from the whole thing. Right. But as I've talked to her and as I have, as she and I have rebuilt our friendship and our relationship over the last couple of decades, that there's a consistency in a love for father that's there. Now, was it tied to Jesus's name all the time or was it tied to the religious system that she came from? No, it wasn't. But man, those, those deep threads of, no, this is very much still a part of who I am, but I do not want to be a part of that system. I do not want to succumb to this family control that was overseen by the archetype figure, you know, the, the authoritarian figure, her stance was, I'm I'm not going to play those games. And man, watching the, the extent that the family system went to pull her back into control and to get back in line was it was kind of gut-wrenching to be bluntly honest uh, she man she went through it for a period of time that's why you can really honestly say control is the opposite of love so how do they get so twisted because the people that were in the process of eliciting control to try to get them to try to get my family member back or or when i think about some of the religious or organizational systems that I was stepping outside of, and they were trying to bring me back in. They view it as loving. They view it as care. They view it as it's for your best interest. It's for your, it's for your eternal salvation. It's for your long-term well-being. And so we're going to use this control because it's the way that we love you. It's the way that we, the way that we protect you. What, like, what do you do with that? How, I mean, it's so twisted. It, that's the dark lie, right? Because I'm only acting in your best interest. I, yeah. What I want for you is the best of all things. And when you resist right. it, now, and I've said this a lot, when we try and combine state and church kinds of faith and state, the power mm-hmm. of the state, it always gets to the point of if, if I have the right to control your behavior to make you more godly, what do I stop at? Mm. But punishment is too great up to up to executing people because that's what yeah. that's what Christian based governmental agencies have always ended up doing. Even even search stuff, the Inquisition, the Crusades, that you do what we want or we're going to kill you in God's name. That's that's Saul before he comes to Christ, right? As, a, as yeah. a Jewish person, I have the right to conform behavior, and somehow we've missed the larger story that. God, who has all control, is not using it. He's inviting people to be loved and to live loved and to know you're loved and let love change the world. That's Jesus put all his eggs in that basket. Yeah. And we're not doing well with that basket. And for control, if we can see that, and we often first see it by, I don't want to be controlled, even if you think you've got the best thing in mind. And then we always call that rebellion. So anybody Correct. that didn't fall in line with the system, 
you're rebellious, and then you don't respond to that, so now you're demonic, and if you don't respond to that, now you're going to hell. I mean, it's just, there's no, and my family got caught in that, to, and I share mm. in the blog, up to my dad saying, I'm, I'm going to hell. I will not join him in heaven, and I have two demons that filled my life. I mean, my own dad, who I've walked with for 68 years of lovely yeah. friendship and exploring Jesus together, goes to that level for this exact thing that Brian McLaren is talking about. There's, there's a narrative over here where they've got to be clean, and because you didn't go along with everything we thought you should do, we're going to lie about you and marginalize you and do horrible things to you. Now, that's mm. quite in contrast to this note from Mike. He wrote this, listening to the last podcast, I was reminded again that it seems to me people trapped in religion want to do anything but simply love their neighbor. Hmm. They don't trust that to work. Or maybe better said, they've been convinced by the religious leaders that it's really not enough. Whether it's the charismatic striving for revival theory or the fundamentalist striving for self-righteousness, neither wants to take the narrow path of loving their neighbor. And I get it. Sharing a meal with the smelly guy or offering your couch to the homeless teenager can be uncomfortable and inconvenient, but the true blessings are in sitting with those who've been traumatized by this life. Besides, Jesus didn't say, wouldn't it be nice if we could all love one another? He said it was the way, the only way an unbelieving world would know that we are his, stripping all else away, the reality of living in and trusting the love of God, and then extending that love to each other, neighbors, enemies, ourselves, as the fullness of the kingdom. And it is the characteristics of the mature church and the final epoch. Mm. Now, that's so different than the, the quest for control. Yeah. To love, to love openly, to love the marginalized, to associate with the scapegoated, to, to realize. And, you know, I realize up until 30 years ago, most of my life I've, been, I've spent trying to ingratiate myself to the scapegoaters rather than the scapegoated. Mm. I mean, that's where the power is in our culture. The power yeah. is... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sucking up to the people who have the reins of power so you can benefit from that power. To actually see the marginalized, the downtrodden, the traumatized, which I see now in spades with my own family, yeah. man, to, to sit with my wife and her trauma, to let God love one at a time who's right before us, that mm. is the nature of the kingdom. But yeah. as he said, we don't seem to trust that. We've got yeah. to tamper with systems. We've got to take over systems, and then we can do this. Why do you think there's such a diminished trust in that process? Is it because we're not, quote unquote, and I use major air quotes around, around this, but we're not in control, that we don't impact the results? Is that the reason why we don't trust it? Is we're not getting instantaneous feedback? It could be. It could be. It's just that we have, because we've lived by, and it's going to be controversial, but who cares? Because we live by law, we live by these expectations that God wants us to perform to, and because mm -hmm. our society isn't even trying to perform to those standards yeah. anymore, it's yeah. real easy to be hostile and to feel like, okay, we need to be in control, so we'll take that over. And it's also because we think, and this is, I think, the opposite of Jesus, we think at a macro level instead of the micro level. Hmm. Okay, unpack that a little more. Well, Jesus came to save the world, right? Mm -hmm. But he didn't go to the whole world. He stayed right in a very small geographical area. 
He spent his time not starting a movement, not trying to get large crowds of people. He spent it just, okay, I'm walking through town today. This guy needs some love. That woman does. I'm at home. I'm going to help them talk about my God a little bit. He is changing the world in the microsphere. The, the leaders of Israel are looking for him to change it in the macro. You've got to move Rome. You've got to change Pilate. You've got to, and yet Jesus came. This is, this is freaks me out mm. about God. You're coming to rescue the world. Seriously, as an embryo in a, in a woman, as a little baby who's got to grow up through everything, through three years of being in a very limited area, yeah, I'm trying to put something in the world that makes you focus on not how do I change the whole world. It's how does Jesus want me loving the next person whose path I cross. Hmm. And I've got a good friend who wrote me this. At the same context I got Mike's note about loving this way. He said, my interest is always in the macro, mm. i.e. The, the letters from my father that I shared from the World War II experience, listening to your wife, your neighbor next door. These stories are important to people as they reveal your heart and passion for others. In my opinion, it is important for your listeners to hear these stories. These stories will strengthen us all. Macro, for the most part, is out of the reach for me to influence. And he sent me this talking about being a flower bomber. He's a gardener, and he's decided he's going to take flowers and look for people to give them away to in his neighborhood and just build relationships mm -hmm. through sharing his craft of flower growing and his passion for it. And I, that, those two things together, and I got these emails pretty much inside of a day or two of each other, and I thought, wow, they really aim at the same spot. Mm -hmm. I have probably ministry-wise most of my life focused on macro. It's the larger, it's the, it's the blogs you write, the podcasts you can do. This is all macro kind of stuff. Yeah. When I walk with Sarah, when I talk to my neighbor across the street, when I'm looking for, okay, who's the next person I get to love that I'm talking to and the insight God might give me for them, that's where the kingdom thrives. It's person to person, which is what Jesus yeah. demonstrated. And we keep trying to find <laughs> a system where we can... Build a system that will do the changing of culture or people to what we think is best for them, which continues to be fruitless. Hmm. And the loving one another, which is not, come on, that's not as big a deal as being a one million uh, follower influencer on the internet <laughs> sharing my wisdom with uh, faceless, nameless people. <laughs> And then you find out so many of those people don't have a faith in God on their own anyway. They're just, yeah. it's the notoriety that they were seeking. It's the fame. It's the income. It's, it's all of that that made them feel some self-worth. Hmm. Instead of, no, I've just been loving people right in front of me, which is what Jesus modeled for Pete's sakes. Yeah. And when lives change and the truth comes known, then stuff happens in the world. So beautiful stuff happens in the world. And when I'm trying to control the world, and I'm trying to control my own system or control the people around me because I'm so insecure inside that I can't let you be even all the jerk that you are and love you anyway. Mm. I, I've got you to act a certain way so that my <laughs> love is not wasted. It's, And I, I think we've learned over the last number of years mm. on this podcast, if you have to earn love, it isn't love. Yeah. If you have to jump through this hoop for someone to love you, it's not worth jumping through that hoop. Hmm. Because if you jump through it, oh, you might get some kudos for a bit, but they'll have another one. Yeah. And it's yeah. all your love is always being tested because the real thing is not that they care about you. They care about controlling you. Hmm.
I'm thinking back even to some of the conversations that you and I had when I first met you to the conversations that you and I have now. So over the span of almost 15 years, and even back then, there was still some conversation about platform, about getting access to people, about, you know, how's that, what's that going to look like for you? And and then over the t- over the years that you and I have done relationship together, there's been this invite. There's been this shift in this invitation, and more of that. Like, no, what's in the day to day? How do you, like who's around you? Like who are the direct people? I mean, moving into that, and and that's been that's been a fun forming and changing, in in our conversation since I've known you and loving that that process. And as you're as you're talking about that, I'm just thinking back to that and. And I don't think you were ever promoting me or encouraging me to build a brand, but the the encouragement that I have felt and even the support that I have felt, the affirmation that I've felt from you as we've been talking um, over the last, like I said, 15 years, is even like celebrating the the one-on-one conversations that we're having or the the couple that we're randomly bumping into or those types of things and just the the joy found in that. And that's been, it's been a lot of fun just to navigate that and unpack that together as we've been, as you and I've known each other in that, in that respect. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite an arc. If I look back 15 years, if I look back three, honestly, the last three years with this agreeing with God prayer thing, what happened with my dad, what happened with my wife, finding my way into God's agony and holding that and looking at love in a different way can Man, the arc of shift in everything I think and do has been huge. Well, even thinking about that, the comment that you had of this is going to change the trajectory of your life. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's been rerouting pretty significantly over the last five years, you know. And when I look back at all that, my only regret is I wish it would have happened at 30. Mm. You know, it's not like, oh, I went through this horrible thing and the trajectory of my life has changed. My gosh, I have ended up in a much sweeter place, not only with other people, it's sweeter with God because it's more in touch, as I understand it, his heart for the world, rather than whatever it is that Wayne wants to do to influence the world with his message or a message or what I think might be God's message and it's just everything wonderful spills out of the freedom to love. Mm-hmm. Even if sharing on a podcast, sharing on a blog, whatever, even if that bears, and the reason I do that is that bears fruit in lives. And I get, yeah. I get, I get emails from people and I get in conversations with the people that I absolutely love. I love mm-hmm. helping people now find their way into the reality that their hearts hunger for. Yeah. And to realize it's not going to come because Wayne puts together the live stream seminar and goes and teaches everybody a workbook of things and principles to believe in. No, it's no, it's how to how do you connect with the Holy Spirit breathing through you mm. and the journey God inviting you on? And how is it he's going to add these things to your life? Not in a systematized way that I can devise the younger yeah. days when I would have thought in those terms. I don't anymore. I just want to help people identify this might be a fingerprint over here. This might have something to do with what God's doing in you and stirring in your heart so that God invites you into this wonderful space. And this is the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my whole life, the way I live right now. Not not what I do. It's just the way yeah. I live and how I see it impacting people and how it's 
invited me into a different space with, with Jesus and my conversations with him are so much richer mm. and so much more honest as to what's going on in me and seeing the where God makes himself known in the weaknesses of my life, not the strengths and gifts I offer to God, mm. which seem far less important these days. Mm. Man, I just think about that and the the relational invitation that's in the midst of that. It I I wonder though, like you you mentioned about your 30s, and I wish I knew would have known this in my 30s. I, I wonder if you would have had the relational fortitude and foundation to be able to handle a course correction like you've gone through over the over the last three, four years. I don't wonder that at all. I, I no? know, yeah, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, like okay. it, the things I'm learning now, if someone tried to share she, this, these with me like 25, 30 years ago, I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. You're just completely. And that's <laughs> what I see that. I see other people glass over who are much more the performance oriented, trying to build a ministry for themselves type personalities. Mm -hmm. And they look at me like I'm you know, just just talking about uh, UFOs or something. And I, I get it because I, I think this capacity, and I don't want to sound, I don't know the best way to say this. I think the capacity God's developed in my life has taken a 60-year trajectory. It just has. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, it took 40 years to even open up to being living loved as a reality instead of trying to be loved. And then all the fruit that's come from that and the pain in my life that has caused me to rethink everything. Like somebody said, you know, the two books you've got to read to grow in Jesus is one. You've got to read the scriptures are a big help to that. And the second thing is the book of your life. Yeah. Where, where does it make sense and where does it not? And what are you learning and what's fruitful and what isn't? That's always been a driving force for me. What's fruitful and what isn't? And things I think are fruitful, should be fruitful, trying to make fruitful. And you just finally <laughs> step back and go, yeah, that's not being fruitful. That's being hurtful, <laughs> harmful. I think it gives me a lot of hope, though, as somebody who's in their late 30s of even, even the person who is building the brand or is building that name or is, you know, in the system thing. It's like, okay, Lord, I, I don't have to have angst about that. I don't have to have anger about that. I don't have to have frustration about that. I can be at rest with you are working out your salvation and your kingdom and your glory in this world in your own time, in your own way. And, and there's hope, there's hope that like, I can't wait to see what, what I know of father's heart in 10 years. I can't wait to see what I know of father's heart in 20 years. Like I, I have no idea where I'm going to land with that, when that comes and hopefully it does come. But just that even when they, to see somebody get glassy eyed in a conversation where they don't resonate or connect with what you're talking about yet. It's like, okay, that's cool. That's okay. Father, like there is, there is absolutely nothing that father is not capable of winning a person's heart into. I mean, it like, it just, yeah, it blows my mind. It blows my mind at, at his capacity to draw and allure my heart into a deeper resonance with his love. I like that. And the only thing we add to that, right, is to be willing to go along yeah. with him because he's not going to control it. He's not going to make it happen. He's going to offer us I, I, there's so many forks in the road. You know, this is, you can go this oh, way gosh, or this yes. way. And this way, yeah, more pain, more, but I'll be there too. 
or this way, which is more life and more freedom. And I, 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 I've made enough choices. I made both. I've made, I've made yeah. the wrong uh, fork in the road and then find myself rerouted down the road. But I, I, I think the process has put me where it's put me and in terms of my ability to perceive what God's about and how to follow him. Man, that's a long way from perfect, but it's a heck of a lot of fun right now. Yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 